Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Um, Over the last eight weeks, I guess, we've been going through a series called A New Kind of Obedience. So what we've learned in the Sermon on the Mount is that we don't need more obedience necessarily, but we need a new kind of obedience. We need an obedience that flows out of a love for God, but not an obedience just to get God's favor. Does that make sense? So we need a new kind of obedience. So today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 27, so Jesus is going to be finishing his sermon on the mount. But before we do that, let me share with you a quick story. So around two years ago, um, I went on a mission trip through Mercy to South Asia, and one of the things that I needed to do when I got there was I needed to exchange my U.S. currency to rupees. You went with me on that trip, remember that? That was fun. Uh, We needed to change our money. We needed to change our money, so we went to the station, our money-changing station. We got there, and when we got there, there was this guy, and he started to take our bills, and he started to rub them with his fingers, and he started rubbing them, and eventually I was like, hey, man, what you doing there? And he's like, well, I can tell by just touch whether or not they're fake or whether or not they are counterfeit or whether or not these are real bills. And I was like, is that your only test? He's like, no, there are other, there are other tests too. But he, could, he does this so much. He's so familiar with what is true that when he comes across something false, he knows the difference. And I think, you know, and then I also saw this when, uh, when I got engaged. So me and my wife have been married for six years. We got, we got two kids, one on the way. And, but when I went to get engaged, you know, I went to a diamond dealer and he started showing me all the process of how to look at a diamond and how to know whether or not it is real or whether it is counterfeit. And I think that in Matthew chapter 13, uh, sorry, chapter 7, 13 through 27, uh, we see that Jesus wants us to know true faith. He wants us to know true faith. So like any good teacher, he uses metaphors to get his point across. So all these metaphors point to the fact that Jesus wants us to be able to tell True faith from counterfeit faith. Now, this is extremely important for every single person in this room. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to walk through this passage. But I'm going to warn you, Jesus is going to bring up some really tough stuff. He's going to say some things that are really countercultural. He's going to talk about himself as being the only way to salvation. He's going to talk about false teachers He's going to talk about people who think they know Jesus. But when they come to meet him one day on judgment day, they'll realize that Jesus doesn't know them. This is extremely countercultural for us in our culture here in America. But the good thing is that the Bible is countercultural no matter what culture you're from. So all across the world, wherever people read the Bible, it's going to be offensive. (laughs) So this morning, as we jump into chapter 13, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Lord, I pray this morning, God, that you, that you meet us in this place, 
Lord, I pray for the Christians who are in this room, the people who do know Jesus. God, I pray that they will leave encouraged. More encouraged than they've ever been. And Lord, I pray for those who may not know you. I pray that they will see you for who you truly are. And that is Lord. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so if you'll open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, here's what Jesus says. Now, he comes out fast, right out of the gate. Here we go. He says, number, uh, verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that there is one way to salvation. There is one gate, and that gate is narrow, and the gate is found in Jesus. But there's also a wide gate, and this wide gate leads to destruction, and there are a lot of people who go through that gate. So those who go through the wide gate are those who believe that salvation can be obtained apart from Christ. So the people who, fought, who go through the wide gate believe that salvation can be attained apart from Christ. When they seek it, Jesus says, when they go through that gate, it leads to their destruction. Now, this is, this is a difficult truth for many people, and it's often what turns people off to Christianity. But Jesus is clear that there are no other ways to salvation. There is one gate that leads to salvation, and it's by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Again, Jesus is the narrow gate. And in verse 13, he tells his hearers, enter through the narrow gate. Don't go through the wide gate. That leads to destruction. And by destruction, we'll see later on that that means eternal separation from God in hell. And I know that some of you might be hearing this for the first time, or maybe you're new to church, or maybe you thought you were going to Bojangles with your friend this morning, and he just kind of brought you in here, and you're like, what is happening? But I want you to understand this is so important. There are not multiple gates to salvation. There is one. There's only one. And you say, because I've been in your shoes, you say, seriously? Can there really only be one way? Is God really going to offer just one way for all these people in the whole world? That is so unloving. I can't believe in a God that's so unloving. Listen, I hear you. And I just want to beg you just to hang in with me. And let me tell you what God did. And later we're going to talk about, about a, a message that is false later on. But let me tell you the truth of the gospel. About what you need to know in order to enter in to this narrow gate. So when God created the world in the Bible, when he created the earth in the beginning, it was perfect. But the man that God, the man and woman that God created rebelled against him. And when they did this, they broke their relationship with God. And in that moment, in an instant, sin entered into the world. And this man and this woman, who are our representatives, now have passed on the curse of sin to every person who has ever lived. So anything you look out at the world right now and you see that is wrong, famine, storms, diseases, racism, whatever it is, all of that is a result of this horrible day when sin entered into the world. 
but God because of the great love with which he loves us. And it is a, our God is good. He sent his son. Think about that, parents. Even if you're not a parent. He sent his only, his only son. Why? Because you and I have a sin problem. And our sin problem has separated us from God. So what did God do? He sent his son. And then Jesus willingly went to the cross. And God poured out every ounce of wrath that he has toward our sin onto his son Jesus. Every sin that you and I have ever, ever committed, past, present, future, for the whole world, he took it upon himself and God crushed his son. He crushed him. In Isaiah 53.10, it says that God was pleased to crush his son. How can that be? It can only mean that he loves us so much. So Jesus died, but because he is God, he rose from the grave, defeating death and defeating sin. And if we believe this, if we believe in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, and if we turn from our sin and give our life to him and surrender, then we can enter in through the narrow gate. Salvation is by grace alone, meaning it's a gift. It's by faith alone. We need to put faith in him, and it's through Christ alone there's one gate. This is the gospel. This is the good news. But brothers and sisters, there was never any intention from God to make multiple ways of salvation. There was never any intention from God. From the beginning of time, there there would always be one. Why? Because it cost God too much to make multiple ways. I mean, think about it. If there were multiple gates, then Christ's death would have been meaningless. God gave up everything so that we could be reconciled back to him. And if he offered salvation through multiple gates, he would have killed his only son for no reason. This is why rejecting Jesus is so offensive to God. Why? God gave up everything for us. He gave up everything for us. So it would make no sense for him to make multiple gates. And I beg you, if you don't know Jesus today, turn to him. We'll talk more about this later. But turn and give your life to him. But then Jesus tells us that we need to be on guard. He says that we need to be on guard. And then he shares a second metaphor, a tree and its fruit. So let's read verses 15 through 20. Here's what 15 through 20 say. It says, Be on guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every tree produces good fruit. I'm sorry, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. So Jesus, he warns us to beware, to look out, be watchful for false prophets and false teachers. He said to be careful because they're going to come to you in sheep's clothing. 
They're going to disguise themselves and try and sneak in when you're not being watchful. But secretly, they are ravaging wolves ready to devour you. And since they will be disguised, church, it is essential for us to be able to spot false teachers in their lies. But before we, spot, before we go through how to spot them, let's talk about what false teachers are trying to do. So what are they trying to do to us? What is their aim? How do they try to trick us? Well, they want us to go down the wrong, you know, towards the wrong gate. Right? So let's look. I got two ways that they do this. But before I tell you those, I want to be clear about something. This is going to sound harsh, but it's right from, it's right from the scriptures. Anything, any person that seeks to deceive you and lure you towards the wide gate is following their father, the devil. Why do I say that? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that those apart from Christ follow the prince of the power of the air. Anyone that's, and that's Satan, anyone who wants to lure you towards destruction is following their true father. They're following their true father. So how do false teachers do this? They do this primarily in two ways. I'll put them on the screen for you. I got these from Pastor Kevin DeYoung. I thought this was really, really helpful. So the, number, the, the, first, re, the first way uh, that false teachers uh, try to do this to us is, number one, false teachers try to make the wide gate attractive and lure you toward it. So false teachers try to make the wide gate attractive and lure you toward it. So in our context, many people will appeal to the idea of tolerance in that uh, there is beauty in a plurality of cultural and religious expressions. Now, as Christians, we agree that there is nothing more beautiful than the plurality of cultural expressions. Just look at Roman, uh, sorry, uh, Revelation chapter 7. One day a people from every tribe and tongue and nation will surround the throne worshiping our King Jesus. But people also say, well, Christianity, that's just the white man's religion. Or it's closed-minded. Its teachings are barbaric. Have you ever read the Old Testament? It's homophobic. It's misogynistic. And it has miracles. How do you believe in miracles and also believe in science? False teachers throw smokescreen after smokescreen to distract you, to tear down, and to cloud the gospel. One of Satan's biggest tools is distraction. He's like, if I can just keep them focused on anything and everything besides the gospel, then I can win. But we know he won't win ultimately. That belongs to Jesus. But he wants to keep you distracted. Are you distracted? Or are you on guard? False teachers are like, hey, come over here. Look at all the horrible things you have to believe in order to be a Christian. You don't want to be one of those, do you? And here's what they'll say. They'll say, to follow your heart. To live your truth. Not God's truth. They want, to, they want you to live your truth. Be who you really are. Not who God created you to be, but be who you are. And it leads right towards the gate of destruction. We have to be on guard because false teachers, they're tricky. They're going to come up with all these flowery illustrations and they're going to come up with all these philosophical things that are going to sound really awesome and cute, but it leads to destruction and we need to be able to spot it. The second way that false teachers try to deceive us is that false teachers make the path to salvation obscure. 
False teachers make the path to salvation obscure. So there are two ways uh, that, that we see that false teachers try to make the path of salvation obscure. They deny the gospel or they add to the gospel. Okay, so they deny the gospel or they add to the gospel. So the deniers are what, it just, what I just kind of talked about. They reject the core message of the gospel like they reject the resurrection, the virgin birth, or Jesus' sinless life. And the second one is that there are also those who add to the gospel and say that, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to add works to that. It's Jesus plus works. So thankfully, Scripture shows us exactly what this looks like. Anyone who says that the Bible is not relevant is not reading it close enough because the same false teachers that we see in the Scriptures, we also see still well, alive and well today. And we need to be careful. Listen to this, Galatians. Paul wrote to the, to, to the people in Galatians, and here's what it says. It says that Galatians was written to counter the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were the false teachers of that day. And here's what they said. They said that we needed to add the law to the gospel. So it's the gospel, believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to add all these dietary restrictions. You also need to perform so that you can be good enough. If you don't know what circumcision is, Pastor Richard is down over here. He would love to explain that to you. Uh, but this is false. This is false. Jesus plus works. That's a false gospel. It's no gospel at all. Then in the book of James, you know, James wrote to those who were falling to the other extreme that if we believe the gospel, then we can do whatever we want. That's false. False teachers try to deny it or they try to add to it. Unfortunately, in a room this size, there are people who have suffered from both teachings. Maybe some of you, maybe in your house growing up, maybe at the university that you attend right now, or maybe just the, the environment that you've been in, you were told that salvation was based on your performance. It's not true. The book of Ephesians says that salvation, chapter 2, salvation is a gift that you can have. It's not something that you earn. Or maybe you've been lured by those who are wooing you toward the wide gate. You don't want to believe that. You don't want to be seen like that person. You can't believe in miracles. Are you kidding me? Both are false. And if you're having a hard time this morning, especially those who have not grown up in church or you may not be a Christian this morning, and you have questions, don't just sit there with your questions. Come talk to one of us. Talk to someone next to you. Talk, come talk to one of, our, one of our staff members or prayer team members after the service. The Bible's not afraid of your, of your questions. And we are ready and we are willing to answer them. So please come find us. So now that we know their schemes, how do we spot false teachers? So we know their schemes, so how do we spot false teachers? For the sake of time, what I've done is I've got pictures of all the false teachers in the area. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Um, so... What, rather, what I'll do is I will teach you from the scriptures how to, how, how to spot them. So how do we spot them? Jesus says in verse 20 that you, will, that you will know them by their fruit. You notice that Jesus changed the metaphor on us. It was beware of wolves in sheep's clothing, 
But now he's talking about a tree. Why? A tree cannot be disguised. And fruit, and fruit, you can see if it's rotten or not. So he changed the metaphor. Let's read verse 16. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. Skip to 20. You'll recognize them by their fruit. So Jesus is telling us that we can be fruit inspectors. That we can be fruit inspectors. In Galatians 5.22, we see that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Does this teacher, do they walk in the Spirit? Are they gentle? Are they loving? Do they have self-control? Do they have love? Now, church, be careful. One big mistake that we make in our culture is that we mistake giftedness for godliness. Is that we mistake giftedness for godliness. Now, someone who's really gifted can draw a crowd. They can draw a crowd, but that doesn't make them godly. Someone who can communicate really well, but is not godly, but does not know the Lord, that's a false teacher. Godly people bear Christ-like fruit. John Stott says that there are two ways to test a false teacher when it comes to examining their fruit. So the fruit in, in, in the fruits of the Spirit perfectly mirror Christ. So in light of that, here's a fruit test for you. Here's how you test the fruit. First test, test their character and their conduct. That's the first test. Their character and their conduct. So is their life characterized by Christ-likeness? And no one lived out the fruits of the Spirit like Christ. So do they display the meekness and the gentleness of Christ in love and patience and goodness? If they do, then they're probably not a false teacher. However, the best indicator for this is time. Over time, have they proven to be this? Because here's what happens with sin. Here's what happens with hidden sin. Eventually, it gets exposed. Eventually, it gets exposed, especially amongst teachers. God holds teachers to a higher standard. And God will not let sin continue in his, in, in, in his church. And he will not let sin continue in a believer. God wants to grow you and love you and sanctify you. And sometimes the best thing for you and the best thing for a false teacher is for them to be exposed in their sin. And on the lines of character and conduct, let's ask this question. Do they deflect the praise of man or do they redirect it towards God? Sorry, I said that wrong. Do they deflect the praise of man and redirect it towards God? Does it seem like the teacher is in it for their glory or are they in it for God's glory? Are they in it for their glory or are they in it for God's glory? So the first fruit test, character and conduct. The second one is the content of their teaching. So what are they actually teaching? Are they teaching the Bible? Are they teaching the Bible? Now, I want to be careful here because every teacher, including myself, is a sinner. We're not perfect. We may not explain every text as well as we would like. You know, I think we need to be charitable and honor those who bring us the word. 1 Timothy 5, 17 that, uh, says this, that the elders who direct the affairs of the church 
are worthy of double honor, but especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now, Pastor Spence spends a lot of time, just so you know, he probably spends somewhere around 20 to 25 hours a week planning his sermon. He, he pours over the scriptures weekly, faithfully, trying to not give you his ideas, but to show you the word of God. But there are others who are out to twist scripture to their own gain, who want to lie to you and they want to deceive you. So ask yourself, ask any teacher, where are you getting this that's coming out of your mouth from? Where are you getting it from? If it's not the Bible, you should be concerned. And I'm also not saying that we need to blast teachers that we might disagree with on secondary issues. For example, one of my best friends was, was a Presbyterian pastor. Now, we disagree a lot on baptism, right? We disagree on baptism. I think my friend is dead wrong about that. But he's not a false teacher. False teachers, like I talked about earlier, deny the gospel. They deny the core tenets of our faith. Of our faith. They, they deny the Trinity. They say that salvation is not by grace through faith. It's by gospel plus being a good person. You know, the virgin birth, Jesus' sinless life, the resurrection of Jesus. If those things are denied, we know they are false teachers. But I do feel the need this morning to expose a particular lie that is killing the church in America and around the world. And it's the prosperity gospel. And it is no gospel at all. The prosperity gospel promotes a form of Christianity. It's not Christianity. It's demonic. And it's completely unbiblical. So I'm not, again, I'm not going to share names, but let's expose their idea. And it sounds something like this. If you just believe more, then you will be comfortable. If you pray enough, then God will give you that comfortable lifestyle that you want. We will send you this vial of holy water to anoint yourself if you send us this donation. If you have enough faith, you will get what you want. The prosperity gospel, it preys on people. It keeps people enslaved to their philosophy and because if we can just hold on a little longer, your blessing's almost there. You've heard it. God's already sent your blessing. It just hasn't arrived yet. What does that mean? And it's wrong. It keeps Christians insecure about their faith. Because if I do these things, I'm not getting this result. What does that mean? And they know it, little snakes. They know it because it keeps people stuck to them. And it's wrong. And listen, verse 19 says that every tree that does not bear fruit will be thrown into the fire. God will have his time with them. God will judge every false teacher according to what they have done and to the people that, he has led, that they have led astray. Listen, church. As Christians, we are not promised prosperity in this life. We are promised suffering. We're called to pick up our cross and to die to ourselves. When we gave our lives to Jesus, we surrendered all of our rights to him. We gave him a blank check. We gave him the keys to our life. The only prosperity we are promised is when we show up before our Lord Jesus after we have passed, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's when we see prosperity. 
But unfortunately, these false teachings have seeped into the church in America, and we have Christians who don't feel secure in their salvation. They walk around worried to death that God is mad at them and that they don't have favor with God because they sinned this week. Newsflash, we've all sinned. We have. God is not mad with you. He's not mad at you. If you are a Christian, all of your sins were put onto Jesus. And because of that, we can just be sons and daughters with all of the benefits. God loves you. But verse 21 is really scary for Christians at times. But in a moment, I'll explain to you why it shouldn't be. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? Those are some pretty baller things if you ask me, right? Like driving out demons and doing miracles, those are, that's varsity stuff, right? But then in verse 23, he says, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Jesus takes us into a scene that we will all face one day, and that's judgment day. Jesus said that on this day, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into heaven. Only the one who have, ones who have done the will of his Father will be allowed entrance. We'll explain more about that in a minute. And a lot of people are going to say, Lord, wait a minute. I, I'm, a good per, wait, I'm a good person, though. I promise my goods outweighed the bad. Remember, I, I, I've prophesied in your name. I've driven out demons in your name. And I've done miracles. I've, I've seen miracles happen. And then Jesus said to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Go toward the other gate. I mean, <laughs> Wow. I mean, this, this should knock us out of our seats almost. What? Jesus is saying that there are people out there right now who are going to be completely shocked upon meeting Jesus on Judgment Day. They're going to be, blown, they're going to be so confused. And there are people all over the world, all over our country, all over the room, maybe even right now, who think that they are okay because of their works, but they are not. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. And notice their rebuttal. Notice what they said. They said, they said, look at our works. And for us, the question is, is, is if, if, if they've done all these things, why doesn't Jesus let them in? If they've done all these things, isn't that enough? Church, lean in with me for a second. Just come close for a second. A Christian who truly understands the gospel would never show up to Jesus to him on that day and show him our bag of works. They would never do that. Because we know, Christians know that on that day, our works mean nothing. They mean nothing. And when we get there and if we're asked, why should we be let in? We can confidently say from our knees, 
that Jesus performed in our place. That's why we could enter. It's not our works. It's Jesus' works. It's Jesus' works. I mean, I need it. I'm a sinner. Christians, we are sinners. And when we get to that place, we need a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. Jesus lived perfectly for me. And, the, and on the cross, my sins were placed upon him. And then Jesus rose from the grave. I didn't. I didn't do a thing to earn salvation. All I did was receive the gift that he offered. So if you are a Christian and this verse gives you unrest, if this verse scares you now, I said if you are a Christian, that's key, and this gives you unrest, it might be because you've probably momentarily forgotten the gospel. You've fallen back into that old philosophy that it's Jesus plus works will earn favor. Well, Lord, I blew it this week. You must be mad at me. Or you may not bless this because I sinned in this way this week. That's not true. God didn't sit around thinking about ways to make you suffer because of, because of your sin. No, he loves you. Now, he's serious about it. He wants you to be holy because he is holy. But his wrath was put on Christ. So Christian, stop. Stop flailing around for the approval that you already have. Rest in the gospel. So this, me, this week I met with a couple of our college students. Uh, so they came over to our house for dinner. And, and, uh, and one, of, one of my students, uh, Trey, said something really simple but really profound. Here's what he said. He said, the gospel is the first thing you learn when you become a Christian. And it's also the first thing you forget when you're a Christian. The gospel is the first thing you learn when you're a Christian, but it's also the first thing you forget. So what does that mean? And we say this all the time, that the gospel is for lost people, yes, but it's also for Christians. We have to constantly remind ourselves, renew our minds that we didn't earn this. God gave it to us freely, so because of that, we can just, we can just obey him. So Jesus said in verse 21, that only the one who have done, ones who have done the will of my Father enter heaven. Well, what is that? Let's look at verse 24. 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who's built his house on the rock. So Jesus wants us to be wise people who build their house on the rock. Verse 25, the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because the foundation was on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and it collapsed with a great crash. We see here that there is a storm coming. There's a storm coming where the winds blow and the rains fall, and it pounds the house. What does this storm mean? This is the storm of Judgment Day. How do we know this? We know this because... Judgment Day is often referred to as a storm in the Old Testament. We see that in Isaiah 28. We see that in Ezekiel 13. And we also see that Jesus just finished talking about judgment earlier. So we know that he's kind of continuing in this line of thinking. And we all try to build a house. But the question is, is where is our foundation? That's what you need to ask yourself. Is my foundation on rock or is it on the sand? 
Jesus tells us that the wise man builds his house on the rock, but the foolish man builds it on sand. But here's the thing about the foolish man. The foolish man is, he doesn't purposefully put it on sand. The foolish man is deceived. The foolish man thinks that they're on solid rock when they're not. Why do we know that? Like I said, no one purposefully builds it on sand knowing that judgment is coming and that it's going to fall apart. So what is the rock? Church, listen to this. The rock is obedience to Jesus Christ. The rock is obedience to Jesus Christ. The first piece of that obedience is, the, is that they follow the call of salvation to enter through the narrow gate. That if, that if you repent from your sin and surrender your life to him and follow him, that's the first step of obedience. But the question is for everybody, how do we know? How do we know that our house is built on the rock? Well, there's a really good evidence for that. Let's read verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who has built their house on the rock. The evidence of someone who has built their house on the rock means that they live in this new kind of obedience that we've been talking about this whole series. The one who obeys, here's the sign. If you obey Jesus simply because you love him and simply because you, he's your dad and, and you care about him and you want to see, you want him to be pleased with you and you just love him, that's the sign that you know him. And that he knows you. True followers of Jesus know that Jesus performed perfectly in their place. So we are free to obey Christ out of love and not duty. People who obey out of duty are still trying to earn favor from God. We can't. And we're just so thankful that we just want to do whatever he calls us to do and go wherever he calls us to go. That's why Christians go all over the world with the gospel. Sounds crazy to the world, but not if your foundation is on the rock. So Christian, remember the gospel and remember what Jesus is going to say to us one day. If your house is built on that rock, He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful what? Servant. Servant means that they obey. That they obey out of love. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're not a Christian, or even if you thought you were, but you're now realizing that you're not, I want you to beware because there is a judgment coming. There is a storm that is headed your way. And you might be building your house on sand that will not stand up to judgment. You might think that being a good person will get you through. That God will grade on the curve. That you're better than this person, so maybe God will let me in. You've built your house on the sand. If you think that your good works will earn you a spot... That is not the gospel. But there's good news for you. Today you can put your foundation on Christ. Jesus lived the life 
that you could never live. He lived it perfectly in your place. A sinless life. And then he went to a bloody, nasty, wooden cross. And he was stretched out and he was stripped bare of his skin for you. And worse than that, God poured out every ounce of his wrath to save you. He loves you so much. Turn to him. Turn to him. All you have to do is surrender and believe in what he has done. Believe that he lived a life you couldn't live. He died the death that you deserve and that he rose from the grave three days later, defeating sin and death so that we could be reconciled to God. Please, please do that today.